welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 11 on January 6th, 2017, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room here in Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today we'll be visiting the Aldo Leopold Nature Center here in Madison and talking with Brenna Holtzhauer and Kara Erickson. We're going to cut back on our regular features, such as the weekly news roundup and our DIY project, because the interview ran a little long, but I will chat for just a minute about the wooden worm bit I made this week. Also, we just started an Instagram account. Find us under Low Tech Institute, that's all one word. There we'll share photos of our day-to-day activities. Also, don't forget to find us on Twitter. Our handle there is at low underscore techno, and like us on Facebook. You can check out our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com, There you can find all of our archive podcasts. So now on to the interview. All right, I'm here at the Aldo Leopold Nature Center with uh, two of the staff here, and I was hoping they could just introduce themselves, and then we'll talk a little bit about the center. Take it away. All right, I'm Brenna Holzhauer. I'm the Director of Exhibits and Digital Curricula at the Aldo Leopold Nature Center. And I'm Kara Erickson. I'm the Interim Marketing Manager and Programmer and Designer of Exhibits and Digital Curricula at the Nature Center. Does that fit on a business card? (laughs) No, not very well. (laughs) Okay, so what do you guys actually do on like a day-to-day basis? Um, So as Director of Exhibits, I oversee our exhibit areas um, and I also work really closely with our education department to um, tie our exhibits and displays and our public activities into our educational curriculum and programming. My job here at the Nature Center is really twofold. As interim marketing manager I'm responsible for um, promoting our upcoming events as well as the Nature Center itself and as designer and programmer of exhibits and digital curricula I work closely with Brenna to update our exhibit space, making okay. sure that it's always up to date and the newest information. Oh, that's really cool. And we're definitely going to talk about your, your exhibits because it's probably what everyone comes to see here and they're really interesting. But I wanted to ask, uh, how did you find out about Aldo Leopold Center when you were applying for the job? Did you know about it first and then apply or did you happen to know about it and you saw the position open or how did you guys hear about it? So I, um, I'm originally from Wisconsin. I went to UW, but I moved out east for grad school, and I was working at a couple um, environmental education nonprofits, and I wanted to move back to the Midwest, so I started looking for jobs. Um, and I had never heard of the Nature Center before, but I saw that they did environmental education. I was really interested in it, and it worked out perfectly because... Um, I had just completed my master's degree in museum education, and as I started looking into the organization, I saw that they were in the process of launching into this new initiative, um, renovating the space and adding a bunch of new exhibits and displays. So they hired me to oversee that, which was perfect. And I had first heard about the Nature Center when I was a student at Madison College in their graphic design and illustration program. We had actually talked about the Nature Center from a logo redesign standpoint. Um, And then a few years later, I was working as a barista in a local cafe in Madison here and doing um, freelance graphic design projects on the side. However, one of the former executive directors at the Nature Center was one of my regulars, and after pulling multiple shots of espresso for him, he (laughs) told me there was a job available and encouraged me to apply, and that's how I met Brenna. And so you guys have been here for how long? Um, A little over six years for me. Oh, wow. And I've been here for a little over three years. The first two and a half years, I was a very part-time basis, 10 hours a week. Sure. More full-time. 
So how long has the organization been in place and how long has the center itself been here? So the Alda Leopold Nature Center was founded in 1994. So we've been around for over 20 years doing pretty similar things the whole time, environmental education, um, field trips, all of our different programming, which we can talk about. We added the exhibit wing and some of the new technology and displays, which opened to the public in 2012. So that was kind of a new development. But the land has been here it originally it changed forms a couple times. In the 60s, it was a tuberculosis sanitarium with manicured wow. gardens. And this was the, there wasn't a building here. This was like the gardener's shed. And then over time, it sort of evolved into just sort of a volunteer naturalist taking some school kids around every once in a while and restoring the trails. And then eventually in the 90s is when um, the board of directors was formed and they hired an executive director and the nature center was formally established. That's when you started getting full-time staff as yes. opposed to volunteers? Oh, okay. Correct. Yeah, I think we've had part-time naturalists over the years that do most of our teaching, but yeah, that's when we hired a full-time executive director and then slowly added some administrative positions over the years. So have the goals of the center changed from when it was a mostly volunteer organization to a more full-time staff organization, or are they largely the same principles and goals? I think largely the same. Um, of course, over the years, we've evolved a little and we've grown and um, added new things, but I think our core mission and our values of getting kids outside and teaching the public about nature and the environment has stayed the same. Yeah, I just saw a story this morning from I was a Europe, I was a British newspaper that was saying multiple studies are showing that kids are spending too much time on the screens and not enough time outdoors and things like that. That seems like you see those stories now every day yeah. or every week when you look for them. So the new exhibit space you said was 2012? Yep. And I walked through a couple of weeks ago and I think my two favorite things, I like the whole thing. I like that it has small bite-sized pieces of a lot of different parts of about the environment, number one, and climate change, number two. Um, some things that I hadn't seen before were the globe full of shrimp. <laughs> and it's a stable state sealed world where the shrimp live with algae and coral how does that work exactly yeah so that's our ecosphere, ecosphere. um and it's yeah that's a great exhibit it's like you said it's stable state it's completely sealed off we closed it up in september of 2011 and we haven't touched it since so um there's a steady population of shrimp in there um they're brine shrimp and then there's also algae and then some different nutrients and bacteria so it's a completely self-contained ecosystem and it propels itself just with energy from the sun coming in. So we use it to teach about all the different cycles of life, the carbon and oxygen cycle and photosynthesis and food chains. Um, and it's sort of just a small scale model of our planet. So it's a really great way. As soon as we tell kids or adults that it's sealed up, they instantly have a million questions because they know you're supposed to poke holes when you put animals in a jar. Yeah. So um, it's really thought provoking and it really helps illustrate all of the different concepts that we try to teach. I suppose you have to give a disclaimer to small children and groups saying, don't try <laughs> don't. to do this at home. Exactly. balanced. <laughs> <laughs> And I also really like the projector room, which is kind of a 3D immersive projector all around you. And you know, as an archaeologist, I was really interested to go to the plain of Giza and see the pyramids and the Sphinx and things. Like I've never been there, but it was neat to stand there and look all around me and see kind of a 3D experience. Where did you get that, or where did that idea come from? Um, yeah, so that's called our immersion theater, and that's our newest exhibit. We actually basically completely redid that room and opened it. That opened last fall, October 2015. 
And that was sort of a work in progress for a couple years where we had a vision of what we wanted in there and then we just had to kind of line up all the parts, engage some different partners and some technology experts, acquire the funding and uh, hardware and everything. But basically that, yeah, that's a really great space and we designed it to be really user friendly. There's a touchscreen kiosk where we have all different chapters of content and media and a lot of it's like the what you mentioned visiting the pyramids and everything a lot of that is google earth open source imagery that we were able to install with our software and then we give visitors access to fly around the planet visit different places and then we also have a lot of different animations and movies that you can watch that are all sort of panoramic so you feel like you're really immersed in it And that room has a lot of different teaching capacities, and um, like I said, the general public can control the touchscreen. And the whole point of that room was to not um, try to replace uh, experiences people can have outside, Mm -hmm. because our main goal is still to connect people with physically with the environment. But we wanted to be able to um, complement and expand on what they can do here on our grounds by flying them around the planet, visiting different climates, um, diving underwater, visiting ocean food webs, things that they can't really do here on our local grounds. And uh, Kara, do you have any particular um, exhibits or things that you tend to really gravitate towards or really like? Well, I was just thinking that I, too, I love the immersion theater as well. One of the really cool things that we've been able to do with the immersion theater, as Brenna stated, was partner with NOAA, NASA, and California Academy of Sciences. And so there's some really great content that we've been able to access through our partnerships with those organizations. One of them in particular, I just want to talk about the solarium because it's some really cool new data, but there's video footage in the immersion theater right now of the sun, where NASA scientists, media specialists, um, took 10 different invisible ultraviolet wavelengths and assigned them each a specific color, and then they created visuals of the sun with these ultraviolet waves lengths. Oh, that's cool. And the solarium, is that also a projection room, or is that...? So the solarium is in the immersion theater. So the solarium is actually one of the different buttons that you can navigate to in the immersion theater. I suppose it's easier to look at the sun there than in real life. (laughs) Yeah, we try to feature, we have a lot of consistent content in there. And like you said, a lot of it is centered around climate and climate change, just because it's such an important concept to teach. Mm -hmm. But we have a lot of anything related to kind of earth science and the natural world. Um, We have some great astronomy content and we try to change out the theme every month so that we highlight new and interesting things and we also are able to kind of tell different stories using all of our teaching tools. And so December's theme is um, solar celebrations. So that we're talking about the solstice and why we have different seasons, why it's so dark right now. We're also celebrating energy from the sun with this NASA solarium content, which is really cool. Um, And then we also talk about how we use solar energy with our solar panels on our roof and why we have a real-time solar dashboard that you can access through our touch screens. So you can really just physically see how the amount of solar energy we're collecting during the month of December is much lower than in the month of July, for example. So it's just kind of a fun way to talk about different things and use our media in different ways. It was interesting. Significant other and I just moved here to Madison, and she went to work and came home and said, I didn't see the sun today. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, she went to work at a normal time and came home at a normal time, but she didn't see the sun. Welcome to Wisconsin (laughs) in December. (laughs) Yeah, because I remember that when I was young growing up in in Minnesota, you'd go to school and come home, and it would be have lights on in your car both ways. Yeah. You had no sun. You just get used to it, I suppose. But it's a good idea to focus on the sun in December and (laughs) remind us of what's coming back. So you have a lot of programs here. 
could you briefly just outline a, the, the primary programs you offer to visitors? Yeah, we have, um, like you said, lots of different programs. From an education standpoint, um, during the school year, we offer field trips for, for K through 12 students, particularly elementary school. That's our largest group. We also offer um, preschool programs, which is our Wonderbugs program, homeschool programs, after school and vacation day programs. All summer long, we have summer camp programs. From We offer day camps for younger kids and week-long adventures for older kids. In addition to an educational standpoint for kids and students in the K through 12 population, we also offer educational and engaging family public programs. So we have a Probably one event a month. In January, we have our Candlelit Snowshoe. One of our favorite events in spring is Maple Syrup Fest, when we celebrate maple syrup and tapping of the maple trees. In the fall, we have our Fall Fest, which is um, for our members. It's a thank you for being members of the Alda Leopold Nature Center. And um, as Brent had mentioned, in December, we just celebrated our winter solstice celebration. So we have about one family public program a month. That was just a few of our favorites. We also have quite a few events for um, our partners and members of the community who enable us to continue to provide educational program for kids. In February we have a Brainiac Bowl, which is a trivia contest coming up that helps raise money for the Nature Center. Um, and one of our favorite fundraisers in the fall is Pipers in the Prairie, which we have bagpipes and drummers and a huge bonfire. There's a performance by the Green Man, Celtic music. It's quite the event. So we offer quite a few different things. And then in addition to all that, we have our permanent outdoor self-guided hikes, our permanent indoor exhibit space, which we have just recently talked about. And we also have um, a rental program. So we offer our Black Earth and Monona spaces for rentals for brides interested in green weddings or uh, maybe some businesses that are looking to provide a working retreat in a natural setting. So we do offer a rental program which that in turn supports educational programming at the center. Wow, uh, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so really even if an uh, individual wanted to drop by, they can drop by and do the self-guided tour you yep. said or walk uh, through the inside. Our mm -hmm. um, indoor space is open seven days a week for walk-in visitors. Great. So you said that uh, school, especially um, Elementary school kids are your largest group of visitors. Is there a group that you're trying to attract that you don't feel like you're getting enough of yet? Yeah, well, we, um, we're always looking to grow our number of drop-in visitors, our number of walk-in visitors. But we also um, are looking to do things to diversify our the elementary school population that we serve. For instance, our Wonderbugs program, which is our preschool program, we offer that in Spanish now to offer programming for individuals where English may not be their first language. We also have um, programs for older kids and adults. We, we would like to attract more of those teenage, teenage visitors as well as young adults. A lot of our member population, they're either educated families with young children or sometimes um, they're older adults. But we'd like to attract some members that are younger adults perhaps without mm -hmm. kids. I have no suggestions off the top. <laughs> how, how you would attract teenagers and young adults? Seems like a fickle and difficult demographic to pin down. One thing that struck me as I was going through and reading, and this is something I think a lot about, is presenting complex scientific information in a public-friendly way, because you can't be too pedantic and talk down to people about it, because that's not very comforting. But you want to not skim over the top and be free of facts or details. So how, how do you, at both as a 
if you're giving a tour, for example, or you know, in writing the text for your exhibits, how do you try and thread that needle? That's a great question, and that's something that we are thinking about all the time. We have, and there's a couple different answers to that question. Um, I think we have a lot of offerings. We have a diverse array of indoor and outdoor, and we have self-guided and guided, and so there's a little bit of something for everyone. Our staff is really, really knowledgeable, and they can lead all different kinds of programs, and they're really skilled and talented at distilling information for all different audiences and also kind of gearing content up and down and doing whatever makes sense with depending on the group that they're working with. And then also having the high-tech exhibit spaces that allows us to just present a ton of content. So we have kind of surface level intro topics, but then depending on how interested you are, you can keep drilling down deeper and deeper and learning more and more. And so we have a little, yeah, a little bit of something for everyone. If you're a four-year-old and you just want to play, we have indoor play spaces and nature nooks that are also um, kind of on the side teaching you about the local habitats and plants and animals. You know, we have our pond. You can just dip in the pond and learn about the local species here. Or we have identification guides and our staff that can give you more information if you're interested. So we have something if you're interested in Aldo Leopold, if you're just kind of a average nature lover, if you're a huge science geek or you love astronomy, we have a little bit of everything. Lots of options. That's definitely a good way to do it is to have, like you said, you're able to, with the technology, able to drill in on topics you're interested in. Mm -hmm. I find not that Wikipedia is the perfect uh, example, but if you're clicking through there and you find, oh, there's a link in the article you're reading, you're like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to click on that. And then three hours later, you realize you've yeah. been reading 30 articles as you keep clicking through things that interest you. That seems like a really intuitive way to approach learning in a more freeform sort of way rather than... Yeah, and that's exactly how our digital curriculum is designed. Mm -hmm. Like our touchscreen kiosks have, um, there's first of all, there's a kid's strand and then sort of a general strand. So even just entering into it, there, it's geared towards different levels and then it's divide it's organized into a whole bunch of different overlapping topics but instead of a linear pathway you can just click through on different links and jump mm. around and explore different things and some people will spend five minutes looking at it some people will stand there for half an hour and just keep reading so it really depends and a lot of times groups will come with multiple ages like a grandparent will bring their five-year-old granddaughter or whatever so um, we have things to keep everyone engaged all at once, which is really nice. <laughs> That's great. I want to change gears a little bit and ask um, a little bit of the uh, completely different side of, of the organization. So you guys are a nonprofit, and obviously uh, nonprofits are largely uh, apolitical or supposed to be if you're getting nonprofit status. So you guys talk a lot about climate change, which is a political topic for some reason. Um, so when you have very clearly stated stances on things like climate change, that it's you know a scientific consensus and the question isn't if it's changing, but how much and things like that, how do you navigate political waters where that sort of statement might be at odds with, with local, state, or federal political bodies? How do you do that as yeah. a nonprofit? Great question. Very apropos. <laughs> um, and like you said, I mean... Sometimes things are politicized that really shouldn't be. But, um, yeah, we definitely make efforts to just kind of stick to the science. We teach concepts. We teach the facts. We teach a lot of just basic fundamental understanding of the world around us and what's happening. Um, and I think that's kind of the main consistent content that we teach. Um, 
I think another thing that we do is we just use a lot of local examples. We talk about things that are happening. First of all, we connect people to the world around them so that they start to um, engage with it and observe and explore and just start to notice the world around them. Then we also teach what's happening, why it's happening, you know, just basics like the water cycle or the weather or the changing of the seasons. Um, we use the practice of phenology a lot, and phenology is the science of appearance and observing and recording what's appearing in the world around you. So like tracking bloom times of plants or migrations of birds. Um, and that's a really great way to talk about changing of seasons and then also how those are changing over time, long-term patterns, the way that the climate is changing in that sense. Um, we have a new program that we launched this year called our Digital Docent, where Visitors can just on their own with their own smartphones walk around on our grounds and there's just little codes they can scan and pretty brief but interesting information and fun facts will pop up about different species that they're like the tree that they're standing next to or the frogs that might be hopping in the pond next to their feet and then we talk a little bit about what's happening to those species as the years are going by and as changes are happening on our planet um, and I think when you talk about climate change as a big overarching global topic, there's there's just so much information and there's it's really overwhelming. But I think when you start talking about local examples, things that are happening in our daily lives, people know that that's happening. They can acknowledge that, you know, we have a month less ice on our Madison lakes now. And I think any anyone who's grown up in this area can know that and appreciate it. And we see it happening every year, little by little. Um, and even if it changes from year to year, you can think back to when you were little or when your parents were little. And so those are the kinds of things that really hit home with people. And we're just showing them the data, teaching them how to observe and think about what's happening. Um, and then we also use, we, we've, we try to be very solutions focused and forward thinking, um, getting people to think about what's happening in their daily lives and also behaviors and actions that they can do um, to help make healthier communities. Um, we use our building and our grounds as examples, so we have a lot of sustainability measures and practices in place around our building, and I think just by showing what we're doing and talking about how that helps just even our immediate local environment, and then people can start to connect the dots about how to make those changes in their life and how that can have a broader impact globally and in the larger community. So also in the news we often hear about um, scientific studies being funded by different uh, bodies, both if we're talking about climate change still, you know, both uh, for and against the uh, <laughs> the consensus and sometimes you'll see uh, industry-funded <coughs> reports and things like that. And so, you know, it's always worth asking. You guys obviously have a, you know, really beautiful building and nice grounds and substantial uh, investment that you guys have here. So how did the funding for the the space and the grounds come about? Was yeah, well, we have a pretty diverse funding source, which makes it a little more challenging for our development team to always be <laughs> finding new and diverse donors, but it also um, helps make sure things are sustainable so we're not too dependent on any one source and we're also not too beholden to any one source either. We do generate some revenue from our programming, including our program fees, our uh, camp fees, we sell memberships. Also, as Kara mentioned, we do rentals and weddings, we have a gift shop, and so we do have a couple of revenue streams that help support our programs. Um, we also do those really fun fundraising events mm -hmm. that we talked about. And then, yeah, we are always looking for grants, large and small, um, private, public, whatever we can get. <laughs> There's a lot of, because we do have such great um, educational 
focus and everything's very science-based and we have a lot of really great partners um, that helps us a lot with generating great grant-funded projects. And we get a lot of local business sponsorships and private individual donors as well. So it's a little bit of everything. And then we also just work really hard to keep our costs low and our expenses low so that we can just have the most impact possible. It's also nice you don't have all your eggs in one metaphorical or financial basket. <laughs> yeah. So, if, so maybe switching gears again, uh, I haven't really talked too much about Aldo Leopold himself yet, but uh, for those who don't know, uh, he's probably the, one of the founders of the ecology and the study of ecology in America. Um, and he had a shack uh, near Madison, Wisconsin, about 40 minutes north. north. Right. Um, and so... <coughs> He's written extensively, and I think a lot of people probably find out about Aldo Leopold through his writing. Yeah, his most famous book is the San County Almanac, which many people have heard of. Um, but he, yeah, he's been involved in a lot of different things. In the Wisconsin area, he's got a lot of history tied in, especially with the University of Wisconsin. Yeah, he was the first game warden in the country, actually. It was the first for the, when he was named game warden at the university. It was the first at the university, but then I was also reading that it was the first throughout the nation. He's known as the father of wildlife ecology. Yeah, yeah. and like the grandfather of conservation or something. I've heard yeah. that too with his name as well. I was always struck, because I grew up spending, I'd come home from school and then immediately, you know, put on my outside clothes and go out in the woods and spend, that's how I spent my childhood, running mm -hmm. through the woods with friends. And I was struck when I read his books, not like, oh, those are the exact same thoughts I had, but I immediately could understand mm -hmm. kind of what he was writing about, where he was coming from. And I think most people who spent a good amount of time outdoors probably identified a similar feeling when they first read him. I obviously run the Low Tech Institute, which Maybe there's some listeners today from Aldo Leopold Nature Center membership uh, that haven't heard of it, which is very likely since we just started <laughs> out this year. And my major focus is looking at non-industrial technology and adapting it for a post-fossil fuel world, because clearly at some point fossil fuels are going to run out and we need strategies to feed, clothe, and house ourselves, so that's kind of what I'm working on. And so maybe it's me just cherry-picking, but I noticed that Aldo Leopold seems to have some antipathy towards industrialization. Not that he's completely dismissing it as being useless, but he exemplifies sometimes what I like to say is, you know, a lot of times we adopt technology asking, can we do this instead of should we do mm -hmm. this? There's a line mm -hmm. like that in Jurassic Park that always struck me, you know. Scientists are so busy wondering if they if they can do it that they don't <laughs> wonder if they don't stop and think if they should. Chaos um, theory. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and so, for example, I have a couple quotes here, if you'll bear with me for a second. Uh, so Aldo, uh, these are quotes from Aldo Leopold, uh, quote, civilization has so cluttered this elemental man-earth relationship with gadgets and middlemen that awareness of it is growing dim. We fancy that industry supports us, forgetting what supports industry. My other, I think, favorite one out of, uh, from Aldo is, uh, quote, in short, 20 centuries of quote-unquote, progress, have brought the average citizen a vote, a national anthem, a Ford, a bank account, and a high opinion of him or herself, but not the capacity to live in high density without befouling and denuding his environment, nor a conviction that such a capacity, rather than such a density, is the true test of whether he is civilized, end quote. So maybe I'm cherry-picking, because I'm always looking, you know, anytime I see the industrial or anything like that, mm -hmm. I always perk up my ears. Is that something that is mentioned much here at, at the Institute? It's fine if it's not. I don't mean it as a critique. I just wonder because for me that's it really made my ears perk up when I read this. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with your thoughts about Leopold. He definitely 
had reservations against kind of mass industrialization and using resources just because we can. But I think he also, as a conservationist and especially as an educator, I think he believed in using resources and technology wisely and thoughtfully. Um, our mission here at the Aldo Leopold Nature Center is a quote of, is also a quote of Aldo Leopold. He said that we should teach the student to see the land, understand what he sees, and enjoy what he understands, which is what we do here at the Nature Center. He wrote those words in the early 20th century, and as we've moved into the 21st, well into the 21st century, I think we've embraced some of the benefits of technology. But we still are always tried. We try to be really thoughtful about how we use the technology, when to use it. Sometimes there's not a time to use technology, and we should just dig in the mud and get our hands dirty and get connected with the earth. But I do think when we're talking about some of these global issues, such as climate change or some of the other things that we talk about here, that in the 21st century are becoming more and more important to teach. You have to use technology to be able to explain things, to show the data, to um, use animations and visualizations and um, some of the interesting theaters that we have to explain all these concepts that are really hard to visualize, but then always still take it back to seeing the land around us and trying to understand it and enjoy it and connect with it. And so we try to be really thoughtful about when and how we use technology and make sure we're using it productively. And also just on the topic of kind of industrialization and using technology, I know um, there's another quote that you had mentioned earlier about Aldo Leopold. Oh, modern dogma is comfort at any cost, which is a bold statement, but I, I agree. And so just talking a little bit about our facility and our um, accommodations, I mean, we are, we have a pretty modern building. We serve over 50,000 people each year, so you know, we have to have a comfortable commercial space. But we also, anytime we update and renovate our building, we try to be really conscientious about embracing and installing the benefits of technology, smart technology. We have um, solar panels on our roof. We have smart, efficient appliances and stuff like that. So I think there's a way that you can kind of keep sustainability in mind and keep all those teachings about how everything's connected and thinking about our broader um, footprint and where things come from and and where they go and um, so we try to use our building and our grounds as a model for that too. Well, I notice most everyone's wearing some either a sweater or a vest <laughs> or something around here. Not that, not that it's cold in here. At you know, I didn't notice being cold, but I noticed that it's cool. Like uh, and it's the winter, which is fine. That's mm -hmm. what it should be. And I imagine in the summer you're not uh, ACing down to sixty five or anything. <laughs> Yeah, we try to be pretty conscientious about gets, that. Yeah, It's pretty hot in the loft in the summer. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes about by Aldo Leopold has always been, um, there are two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. One is the danger of supposing that breakfast comes from the grocery and the other that heat comes from the furnace. And um, Aldo Leopold, I mean, he was just a great visionary who excelled in critical thinking. And that's what we're trying to do here is we're trying to present the facts, but then also have our um, visitors, whether they be elementary students or adults, think critically about the facts that we're presenting. He planted over a thousand, thousands of pine trees um, along the Wisconsin River after the lumber, lumber industry had clear cut forests. He was always asking the difficult question, and then what? And that's, I think, what we're trying to do and move forward, and then what? So we have this technology, and then what? You know, our progress in industry is only as good as the future it inspires. So if the future that we're getting from progress is not a healthy one for us, that's 
What does that say about our progress? <laughs> Makes me think of two days, just two days ago, my niece was visiting us here and she found out that we mostly eat venison. We don't really buy meat. We just eat, eat venison that I hunt. And she kind of, not freaked out, but she was like, oh, how can you do that? Da, 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 da. <laughs> and I said, well, where does your meat come from? Oh, mine comes from the grocery store. You know, right. and she's, <laughs> she's, you know, uh, third grade or something like that. You know, so she's like right in your prime demographic. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to have to have a, she was just, they were just about to leave. So we didn't get to have much of a conversation about it. But I imagine mm -hmm. this weekend when we see them, that might be a topic of conversation at some point. It's a very, I mean, it's a very real danger. His quote is unfortunately ringing, tr ringing true for a lot of young people. Yeah. I mean, I think it's truer still today than it probably was even when he wrote it. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely a core part of our mission is just teaching kids, just reconnecting them back to the land and learning about wh what we get from the earth and why we use resources and how we use them. And we have a garden here. We show how we plant food. Just kind of connecting all those dots is really important. And I also think kids today have access to technology. They are very literate with it. They enjoy using it. And so we don't want to just completely fight against it and compete with it, but instead kind of embrace it and use it to our benefit. And also get kids thinking about ways that technology can be a solution for solving some of these big problems of our future. Which in some ways, the digital docent was mentioned earlier, but that is a self-guided walking tour through the grounds that does exactly what Brennan just said. It marries, like, it meets people where they need to be met. So using QR codes, technology, people can scan and learn about different species on the grounds here in, south, in southern Wisconsin. And one of the things that is brought up is um, climate change effects on those species. So if, um, so just some nuts and bolts, if somebody wanted to come visit the Nature Center here, where do they get in touch? How do they find you? What's the best <laughs> avenue to get in touch with you guys? Yeah, so since your uh, viewers are, or your listeners, I should say, are global, <laughs> probably the easiest spot for them would be to reach us would be on our website at www.aldoleopoldnaturecenter.org. Um, we have lots of information on our website about programming and events, as well as different ways that um, you might be able to get involved with us. Our Monona location, which is located at 330 Femrite Drive in Monona, Wisconsin, is open to the public seven days a week, 9 to 4, Monday through Friday, and 10 to 2 on the weekends. Um, and then you can also give us a ring too. Our phone number here is 608-221-0404 if you'd like to speak with someone directly. Okay, and for those outside the Madison area, Monona is basically in Madison. <laughs> yes, it's, yes. It's yeah, kind of tucked inside. We sort yeah. of have the best of both worlds because... We're a little off the beaten paths, which allows us to have these beautiful grounds kind of hidden away. But we're just a few miles from downtown Madison. You can get here by bike or any other method of transportation. Uh, and you mentioned the snowshoe, uh, the candlelit snowshoe and the Brainiac Bowl coming up. Yes, do yes. Have, do you have any other events that are coming up that you want to plug or are those the two main um, well, we also have All You Need Is Love in February. So just real quick, the Candlelit Snowshoe is January 21st from 4.30 until 8 p.m. at our Monona location, which is 330 Femrite Drive. Uh, do you have snowshoes available or do you have to bring your own? We do have snowshoes available. So we'll have snowshoes available. Um, however, if you do have snowshoes, we encourage you to bring them because this is a free event, which we're partnering with the City of Madison Parks as well as Monona Parks and Recreation Departments. So we 
of course, we're hoping to have a huge turnout, of course. So if you have your own <laughs> snowshoes, please bring them along just so we don't run out. But the trails of Aldo Leopold Nature Center, Edna Taylor Conservancy, and Woodland Park, which those two locations are trails can join with Aldo Leopold Nature Center, will have approximately 100 acres um, of trails that can be hiked with softly lit lights marking the way. And then on February 18th, we have All You Need Is Love, which is another family event here at the Nature Center. It's going to be a celebration of owls, so we'll take some hikes, um, learn about our owl owl friends. Owl You Need. All You Need Is Love. Yes, All You Need Is Love. Um, It's better if you see it written. Yes, yes, without my Wisconsin accent, too. Um, All You Need Is Love, and I don't know if... Many of your listeners know this, but owls are often nesting in February. So we're hoping to see some nesting owls on our hike through the trails. Um, we'll have some indoor activities as well. And then in on February 11th is the Brainiac Bowl, which is our big fundraiser. So we have two family programs, one in January, January 21st, um, the Candlelit Snowshoe, and Owl, You Need Is Love, <laughs> February 18th, and then our big um, trivia contest fundraiser at the Brink Lounge in Madison on February 11th. And is that teams of how many people, or yep. how does that work? That is teams. The, the it, yeah, it's tables of, oh. I believe, 10 or 12 10? people. Yeah, 10 or 12. Um, there's information on our website, Great. but yeah, you can sign up by teams it's yes. really fun everybody wears costumes and has wacky team names yep and it's a great way for families or co- companies to compete you know a lot of times we have companies that want to buy a table for their employees and yeah it's good team building yes <laughs> yeah, all right well uh thank you both so much for uh giving me a half hour 45 minutes of your time today and make a link to those things that you mentioned on our website as well so you can check them out there if you didn't have time to write them all down. (laughs) All right, well, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank Thank you. you. This week I'm gonna cut out the news roundup, the research updates, and event calendar due to time, but you can find our weekly news roundup on the website on today's blog post. I'm gonna talk real briefly about uh, Thursday's DIY feature, which was a wooden worm bin. Now there's a lot of plastic worm bins out there and there's a lot of great tutorials for them, so I didn't want to do a plastic tutorial. I built a wooden one because I like wood aesthetically and I like that it will eventually itself break down and have to be replaced, that's fine with me. I found shiplap material in the throwaway bin at a local hardware store and so I got it at a big discount and shiplap basically has two sides that interlock with one another. You could also do this worm bin with a tongue and groove, which is what the plans actually show. And just follow the plans very carefully. Uh, Because of the interlocking nature of it, you have to be pretty precise to make sure everything fits real nice in together. This worm bin design is in our low-tech design series. Um, A couple weeks ago, I introduced the low-tech chicken coop. This is in the same idea that a normal person with normal skills should be able to build this, and it's a much simpler build than the chicken coop, really. It's making three square wooden boxes. Um, could You could get it done in an afternoon if you put your mind to it. Check that out, and I'll do some follow-up posts about actual worm composting in the near future. So find that on our blog and our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com.
That's all I have this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room and the Aldo Leopold Nature Center. Our intro music was The Great Forest off the album Songs for an Unmade World by Visigur. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons attribution and share-like license, meaning you're free to use and share them as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, and please give us a rating. It helps boost our audience reach. I'd be happy to have your feedback, which you can leave me on soundcloud.com slash lowtechpodcast. You can find out more information about the Institute at lowtechinstitute, that's all one word, dot wordpress.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at low underscore techno. Find us on Instagram by searching for our name. And also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. Thanks and take care.